are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Malice, which came out in 1993 and was directed by Harold Becker. It stars Bill Pullman, Nicole Kidman, Alec Baldwin, B.B. Newworth, Peter Gallagher, George C. Scott, Joseph Sumner, Tobin Bell, and Anne Bancroft. The genre would be suspense thriller. The power to heal can be an enormous thing. To save a life, to get blood flowing into cells. If a person can do that, such a person would think that he could do anything. The power to heal can be like a drug. So I went back to introduce myself. Are you ready for this? We went to high school together. Speak of the devil. And the devil appears. I mean, he walks into the elevator and he thinks he's God's gift. What the hell are you doing in here? I can refill this prescription for you. Dr. Hill, I think this might be a mistake. He thought you were going to die. Right about now, he's wishing I did. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. (laughs) Truer words have never been spoken. Actually breathily whispered by Alec Baldwin at his matinee idol best and co-written by two great writers, Scott Frank who'd given us some great movies during the 90s, including Dead Again, Get Shorty, and previous episode Out of Sight. And also Aaron Sorkin, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of The Social Network, who also created The West Wing. Now, I have to guess that the previous quote you just heard was pure Sorkin, but it's just one memorable piece of a twisty little 90s thriller that knows exactly what it is. Silly, but delightfully entertaining. Also directed by Harold Becker, who goes the exact opposite route of his previous thriller, another movie I like, Sea of Love, which was all gritty and grimy New York City raw, by making this all warm New England locations. And also including B.B. Newworth, who plays a dogged detective with an adorably exaggerated Boston accent. I won't mind shooting you. Don't move, you need a doctor. She's fun to watch, as is everyone else in the cast. Alec Baldwin, who receives top billing for this movie, though is not actually the lead, he plays Jed, the hotshot new surgeon in town at the local hospital. Dr. Robinson, uh, may I call you Matthew? Of course. Matthew. I'm the new guy around here, and I want to make friends, so I'll say this to you, and we'll start fresh. If you don't like my jokes, don't laugh. If you have a medical opinion, please speak up and speak up loud. But if you ever again tell me or my surgical staff that we're going to lose a patient, I'm going to take out your lungs with a fucking ice cream scoop. Do you understand me? I'm not going to like you, am I? Don't be ridiculous. Everybody likes me. 
And Nicole Kidman plays Tracy, the seemingly mild-mannered teacher-slash-housewife who just loves kids. Both actors just vamp it up with characters that are almost written to be pure chess pieces. I got a letter today. From who? Whom? From whom? From Dr. Kessler. What did he say? He didn't say, Tracy. It was a letter he wrote. Jed, take a drink, take a pill, do whatever it is you have to, but lighten the fuck up. What did he write? That he was sorry. That he was very sorry. That was thoughtful of him. <laughs> it was. The man put us over the top. I was in the room. The bartender was just icing, but Kessler was the one who closed it. But they make it worthwhile with just about all of the R-rated sexual charisma that either actor could muster at the time. And as to be expected, if you were in the 90s, Bill Pullman, who's actually the lead, plays the straight man, Andy, the local schoolmaster who is married to Tracy. Andy is the real protagonist to whom everything bad happens to. But Pullman plays this character with a knowing wink. His Andy knows that he's playing the put-upon nice guy. But that doesn't mean he can't be above using that to his advantage to get past the not-so-nice guys. You know, in street clothes, Helen looks positively masculine. What? Helen. You said you were getting a ride home from Helen. Were you spying on me? No, I was looking out my window. And you were looking at Dennis Rodney, Andy. He was my mother's lawyer. He had papers for me to sign. Huh. What kind of papers? Something about my mother's estate. What is this? Your mother's estate? Yes. You told me she barely got by on a social security check, and now she's Lady Astor? And then you have memorable cameos from George C. Scott and Anne Bancroft, I'll get to her in a bit later, to add some more twists to the proceedings. And it all adds up to a story that probably does not make much sense when you think about it. And that's where I'm guessing the other major screenwriter, Scott Frank, came in. A couple of years before this, he wrote Kenneth Branagh's Dead Again, which even though I think is one of the best thrillers of the 1990s, the story pretty much goes full-on Hitchcock at the expense of logic. Sometimes a trauma in a present life can lead you back to a trauma in a past life. If you resolve that past life trauma, I think you've got a real good chance of finding out who you are. You take what you learn from this life and you use it in the next. That's karma. Frank knows how to sell his twists as well as anyone, precisely by making it more about the entertaining ways in which his characters will respond to those twists. You see, learning that so-and-so, quote, sees dead people is all fine and good as a twist. But Frank, as a writer, has never forgotten that what is most interesting is what his characters do with that twist. For instance, there is one revelation late in the film that's kind of unbelievable, but the way that one particular character reacts by suddenly demonstrating some humanity in response to this news, it not only makes it more entertaining, but it adds a nice little layer to that character's story. Adding crisp cinematography by legendary DP Gordon Willis and a clever, playful score from Jerry Goldsmith and what results is one of the most underappreciated thrillers of the 1990s. Which brings us to the categories. The first category is the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film. Now back to Goldsmith. The music in this movie is not a huge factor, But once again, we are treated to another strong thriller score from one of the greats. And the late, great Jerry Goldsmith, he was in the middle of one hell of a run of strong music for thrillers throughout the 90s, including The Edge, Air Force One, Ghost in the Darkness, Sleeping with the Enemy, previous episode LA Confidential, and previous episode Basic Instinct, which just has an all-timer score with plenty of playful strings and bombastic horns. I just love that score. 
Well, his score for this thriller, which came out the following year, it's not quite as playful nor as bombastic, but it still works. Even feeling a bit satirical at points with the main theme, which we hear over the beginning and end credits. This main theme expands upon an awkward piece of music, which we hear being played throughout the movie by a child who lives in a house right next to our main couple. I think the kid is actually playing it on a recorder. Well, this main title expands on that by not only adding orchestration, but strangely a chorus too, which kicks in performing it during the end credits. Now, I'm not sure why, and I could be wrong here, but it kind of sounds as if this chorus is mocking this piece of music, or more accurately, the silliness of this movie itself. Just a goofy, winking note to end the movie on, and a good note to end the movie on. The next category is the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Undoubtedly, there is one iconic moment and monologue which has become this film's lasting legacy over the past 30 years. And of course, it's the deposition scene, where we get to see Baldwin really cook as Jed decides to aggressively defend his credentials as a surgeon just as the conversation is heating up. Do you have a God complex? This is not acceptable. No, no, let him address me. Jed? No, no, it's... About time I got to give some answers here. Stop typing. This is off the record. The question is, do I have a God complex? Dr. Kessler says yes. Which makes me wonder if this lawyer has any idea as to the kind of grades one has to receive in college to be accepted at a top medical school. If you have the vaguest clue as to how talented someone has to be to lead a surgical team. Needless to say, Baldwin is amazing in this scene. And not just with his delivery, but his character as a way of looking across the table at Tracy's attorney with utter disdain, even though he's actually never really looking directly at him. I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England, and I am never, ever sick at sea. This sequence is just pure gold, and undoubtedly the highlight of the movie. When someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry, or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death, or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, who do you think they're praying to? Now, you go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church, and with any luck, you might win the annual raffle. But if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. 
Funnily enough, this would be the second year in a row that Baldwin would deliver an iconic monologue in a movie which folks would be quoting decades later. The year before this, he would do so in Glengarry Glen Ross, the unforgettable Always Be Closing speech. Brilliant. A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. And now the next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, I'm doing this after trailer moment for a reason. Regarding that trailer moment, it has obviously become iconic for a reason. However, there is yet another deliciously over-the-top sequence and monologue delivered a bit later in the film, which, if we're being honest, if this occurred in any other movie, which didn't already have Baldwin's God Complex speech, it would likely have been the trailer moment for this movie. Yep, I'm referring to the lone appearance of the late, great Oscar-winning legendary actress Anne Bancroft. She plays Ms. Kensinger, Tracy's mysterious mother who was thought to be dead, until Andy finds out that she's very much alive. Tracy's been lying about her very existence during their entire marriage. Andy finds her at her dreary Boston apartment one rainy night with only one key instruction from Tracy's attorney. Bring her a bottle of scotch. <laughs> I used a single malt scotch. That was so classy, mister. I haven't had single malts in 69. And this turns out to be canny because Miss Kensinger loves her scotch and not much else. Now, a lot of thrillers have scenes like this at some point, where our protagonist finds a new side character who delivers some key revelation, which shifts the plot forward for the third act. Shuffle the cat. Shuffle him good. Bill and me used to give Tracy a little bit of the money each week. She could buy candy or lip. Shuffle the cat. She wouldn't spend it, though. Not a penny. Each week, she put it under the mattress. I think that kid had maybe 200 bucks under the mattress. I'll tell you something else about Tracy. I don't think it bothered her a bit when her father cleaned out the bank accounts and disappeared. I think it bothered her when he took the $200 from under the mattress. But what makes this one so special is Bancroft, who with about six minutes of screen time completely steals this movie. The ratty robe that she's wearing, the way she shuffles the cards, <laughs> her version, of course, of a Boston accent, and just the overall mix of bemused and pissed off that she gives off as she just devours the screen. Look, you said there was a point here, and I Why think do you I... give a Frenchman's fuck who she was sleeping with? Get into the game. Go for the 20 million yourself. You saying that Tracy set this up? What the hell have I been telling you? Am I talking to my shadow? You think you're Sherlock Holmes with this statue? You can buy him in any department store for $89.95. Looks just like the real thing. The whole thing was a setup? You're crazy. Yeah? Then how come I have the jacket clubs in my fucking pocket? Bancroft is so good that you could easily make a case that it's her, not Baldwin, who delivers this movie's best performance. It's all over the top, but it just fits into this world perfectly. I just want to make sure that with this category, she gets her props as well. Welcome to the game. And now the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Now, in case it wasn't already obvious, 
Malice is not a thriller that is particularly reliant on thrills. Nope. It's all about the dialogue and the performances, of course. But no doubt, people in this movie don't really talk like normal human beings. It's all heightened and theatrical. And it's the best part of this movie by far. And that brings it back to the two writers involved who I already mentioned earlier. Both of these guys just love their over-the-top characters with the punchy monologues and the spirited exchanges, the God complex speech, the lecture on scotch, and even a delightful little throwaway line like the following from Baldwin's Jed late in the film. Welcome to the land of you don't have a choice. Who talks like that? I mean, nobody in real life as far as I can tell. But I have to admit that I am relishing the opportunity to be able to say just that, maybe just once, and probably with a loved one who is not going to want to hear it, if I'm being honest. Just fun dialogue. For delivering a steady flow of gems like those, the co-writers Scott Frank and Aaron Sorkin are your co-MVPs. My rating for Malice would be four stars out of five. Hey, what can I say? I'm just a sucker for a good R-rated twisty thriller from this era with big stars delivering over-the-top performances. I mean, hey, I just did The Good Son, right? Not quite as good as this one, but they would make a nice double feature. Happy 30th to definitely one of the most quotable thrillers of the 1990s. And if you're looking to watch Malice, it is now available to buy, unfortunately not to rent, at least not right now, but available to buy on all major online platforms. And that ends another godlike review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.